see, when we say sperm, people are like, oh, sperm, sperm, sperm. You know, like Monty Python, sperm, sperm, sperm. But when we say DNA, people go, oh, yeah, I forgot. That's kind of important. Yeah. 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 I don't know why sperm aren't important. So we have to kind of call them DNA now. <laughs> Welcome to It's Not Human Sexuality, the show that goes beyond sexuality to reproductive health. In fact, probably everything that men do to their bodies affects their reproduction. Sure, because it's happening every day. Understanding the foundations of reproductive health allows you and the ones you love to make better decisions about your health, mind, and relationships. This podcast is co-hosted by Dr. Betsy Cairo, or Dr. B, and Mandy Johnson. I'm Mandy Johnson. <laughs> and I'm Dr. B. <laughs> and this is It's Not Human Sexuality. All right. So if you've listened to any of our podcasts, you're going to know that my co-host and all-around good friend Betsy has another life that she sometimes discusses. Her other life is being the owner of the only commercial cryobank in Colorado. A little bit about her. Dr. Betsy Cairo has over 36 years experience in human reproduction. She is board certified in her specialty of reproductive health. She started her cryobank Cryogam Colorado in 1990 and has never looked back. Cryogam is a small cryobank but still holds its own against the larger corporate banks in the U.S. Cryogam offers services such as anonymous donor sperm, personal cryopreservation, directed or known donor processing, fertility testing of sperm, sperm preps for IUIs, and long-term storage of sperm, oocytes, and embryos. Today, I'm going to interview her to get the rest of the story about fertility preservation. So, Betsy, I don't want to say welcome because you're here every time, but hey, (laughs) welcome to the other side of the script. Yeah, yeah, this will be fun. (laughs) Yeah. So let's start with the name of your company, Cryogam. Want to tell our listeners what that means? I do. But before I do that, I want to tell the story of how it became, you know, how I got the name. So a really good friend of mine is, uh, was a practicing embryologist and also a wordsmith and, you know, he, a professional editor, all the things. And I said, I need a name for the cryobank and I need it, you know, it doesn't necessarily be location specific, like nothing like Colorado cryobank or something like that. But I want it to be unique and clean and all of that. And so he calls me and he says, hey, I've got it for you. Um, come come on up and take a look at it. So Bill and I go up to their house. He lives in Boulder. And he's also an artist. And so the font that we have, he hand drew. It, oh, wow. This is before computers, right? Because it was 32 years ago, 30, right? A long yeah. time. So I look down and he has it all done out in this really cool font. And it, it's Cryogam Colorado. And I just, I'm like, you nailed it. And he goes, I know, right? Because what it is, is cryo means to freeze and gam is short for gamete. And gametes are sperm and oocytes, right? And so Cryogam Colorado, but we can just go by Cryogam. So drop the Colorado, which is just location specific, but it's really cool. And so I owe all that out to Hobart Bell in Boulder. He deserves full attribution on our name and our font because... It's all him. And it's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And so that's how, how we came about. And, you know, we're tiny, but we're, we're pretty well known. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I'm just going to throw in here for anybody. Maybe this is your first time listening to our podcast ever. Betsy, can you explain what an OO site is for our listeners? Oh, yeah. So I use the term OO site, but the world, in particular, the United States, uses the word egg. Right. And so um, egg and OO site are the same. But OO site truly is a scientific word for it. And we try to stay in that professional vein. Yeah. How did you get here? I mean, this is a pretty unique profession and a unique place, like a unique business to own. It's it's not something you hear every day. Um, so you're the executive director and owner of the only commercial sperm bank in Colorado. Right. So how did you get here? Really and for important. that matter, Betsy, what is a sperm bank? Yeah. So that's a great <laughs> distinction. So here's the thing. When we started 32 years ago, we were called sperm banks because really that's all we did. We did long-term storage of sperm. We processed sperm. We evaluated sperm. Uh, we weren't into the business of storing oocytes or embryos because really that long ago, the technique for freezing those two types of tissue, oocyte and embryos, wasn't perfected. So we were an anonymous sperm bank. We weren't even doing directed and I'll get to that in a minute, but we were doing anonymous and personal cryopreservation. So how I got here was my undergrad is in animal sciences with an emphasis in reproduction and a specialty in the science portion of it. And I worked in the animal industry for a bull stud for a couple of years, mm -hmm. then moved to Arizona and uh, did embryo transfer in cattle for uh, a couple of years, and then uh, joined a fertility practice in Phoenix, and she had an in-house tiny little sperm bank that I expanded for her and improved upon. And uh, we didn't like living in Arizona, so we came back to Colorado, started the Fertility Center in Greeley, started a sperm bank for them. They didn't want it, so I basically bought it from myself and named it Cryogam. And then that's how we got started. And then over the years, we've now, we don't process oocytes and embryos, we do long-term storage, which means those are processed in other IVF centers or in vitro fertilization centers around the country. And then we do long-term storage. Mm -hmm. So we're sort of the, the, the cryo locker, space. right? Yeah. So it's like where you put your where you put your DNA, we're those people. But what we do do is we preserve sperm. So and it's it's not like what people think. It's not where you just would take an ejaculate out of a cup and put it in the freezer. It's there's a long process involved. There is a process involved. And um, because you're working with a really tiny cell and very little surface area, it freezes really well. Mm -hmm. So sperm are the smallest cell in the body next to a red blood cell. That is to their advantage because you can actually take this cell, process it, put it with a cryoprotectant, and drop it to a very, very low temperature slowly, like over a 10-minute vapor freeze, you know, and then keep it there. So it's not really frozen, frozen. It's sort of in a suspended state of animation, right? Because the DNA is kept viable. The mitochondria is kept viable. All of its apparatus is kept viable, but it's just not moving. So it's not metabolizing any of its energy. So it's, it's not fully frozen. Would, would, would fully frozen kill a sperm? Yeah. So there are different degrees of frozen, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if I were to take this same process and add the cryoprotectant and put it in a freezer, like a refrigerator freezer, it's not cold enough to bring it down to that state of suspended animation. It would kill it. It's cold enough to kill it, but not cold enough to preserve it. So, so like there are different, line. yes, there are different stages of frozen mm -hmm. that are critical to its survival. 
What if you were to bring that temperature down too fast? If you didn't give it the 10 minutes, would that also kill the Yes, sperm? it'll shock it. So if you went from processing it at room temperature, and you, even if you have it in the cryoprotectant and in this little vials to freeze, and you plunged it into the liquid nitrogen proper, what we call the actual liquid, it's too much of a cold shock and it'll die. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we suspend it in the vapor because liquid nitrogen vapor and liquid nitrogen liquid are Different temperatures. different temperatures. Vapor is warmer by about 20 degrees. It's still very, very cold, but it's warmer. Mm. And so that vapor slowly encases and seeps in and freezes, the, and the cryoprotectant obviously slows that process as well, allowing small ice crystals to form, not large, so that when you thaw it, those small ice crystals will thaw rapidly and not disrupt the membrane by killing it. So there are several stages where these cells can die. Okay. But they're amazing. Sperm are amazing. Yeah. They can actually take quite a hit and still keep ticking. Yeah, I mean, just just thinking about freezing sperm is it kind of is mind blowing for me. Like just yeah. the idea that you can take something like a living cell, freeze it, and bring it back. You know, and I, yeah. I think feel that I, I I definitely feel that way about the embryos, especially yeah. like like that's it, the whole thing is like just it. My brain is pretty wowed by it. That's all it well, is. It's, it's an incredible thing. It is. I've been doing it for a very long time, and I still get pleasure out of it. I, I'm still, after we freeze a patient's specimen, we always do a test thaw. So there's a little lot left out that's not going to be utilized for reproducing, but we have to test to make sure that everything else made it through the freeze. That's called a QAQC portion, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm always amazed that when I thought, I look at it, and they're moving, it's like, Dang. Dang, it worked. That's like, cool. And that's cool. why coming and that's why the the technology of freezing oocytes and embryos was so slow because they have such a big surface area, right? Mm -hmm. So they're Because the egg is the biggest cell in the human body compared to the sperm being the smallest cell. Yeah, in the human so body. it's right. So you have and then an embryo can be even bigger, right? Yeah. So if you think about the difference between an oocyte and a sperm, it would be the difference of you walking up to like an apartment building trying to get in without any doors or windows, right? Yeah. So there's that size difference. And that's why sperm freeze so well. Plus, there's a lot of them. And so if we lose 50% of our count in the freeze, which is not unusual, we still have a lot left, right? right? Whereas if you lose 50% of your oocytes, you've lost quite a bit. And then also because... And they're harder to harvest. Right, because of the surface area, and there's more surface area, the ice crystals have more to damage, and therefore there's no survivability. But embryos, compared to oocytes, freeze really well because they're more complex. Their surface area just isn't one cytoplasm, right, or one mass. Right. They it's have several masses, right? They mm -hmm. have a bunch of tissue inside. So embryos were second to be perfected in freezing, and then oocytes. So... And if you want to know more about egg freezing, please listen to our episode about egg freezing. Um, but my question is for, for listeners, at what stage of pregnancy is an embryo? Where, where does that fall? Okay, so we can get pretty technical about that. But just for the sake of simplicity, once a sperm enters an oocyte, you now have fertilization. The sperm head will go through some changes and the nucleus of the oocyte will go through some changes and they will migrate to each other and exchange DNA. And this is called syngamy. And at that point, you now have a zygote, but what we would call an embryo. Right. Okay. And then that embryo begins to divide, but it's free floating in the body at this point. Right. It, it doesn't attach until about yeah, five to seven days. Yeah. So 
if there wasn't cryopreservation or any IVF, at what point in the pregnancy would that stop being an embryo and start being a fetus? It's considered a fetus until term. It's considered, it doesn't go from embryo until fetus, I think, until about the six week, but it also depends on what scientist you're reading. Sure. So once you have... Somewhere in that first trimester. Yes, once you have differentiation. So once an embryo hatches out of its covering, which is called the zona pellucida, and, and anchors itself in hopefully the uterus, you now have a more complex system mm-hmm. and more differentiation. So whatever part of that embryo was going to make the fetus makes the fetus, and whatever part of that embryo was going to make the placenta, placenta and the amniotic sac and all that makes that... Now you have differentiation. We don't really refer to it as an embryo. But like at what point would that get taken out or is, or, or frozen embryos only IVF? Yes. Okay. Frozen embryos are only IVF in humans. Because as in, soon as I said that, I was like, no, you wouldn't take that out. <laughs> you do in cattle. Okay. All right. Okay. So that's where I started. Mm-hmm. So embryo transfer in cattle is you would hyper ovulate the ovaries of, of, a, of a cow, uh, you would hyper uh, inseminate her, so there's a lot more sperm in her system. And then uh, you would, uh, after a certain number of days, you're going to put a fluid in her uterine tubes and flush all those embryos out and then look for them in a dish and then pluck each embryo, put it in a straw and put it in a recipient uh, heifer that probably doesn't have as good genetics, right? Yeah. And that's how you strengthen the genetic herd faster. Mm-hmm. So in bovine and other animal species, they actually make the embryos in their body and we flush them out before they implant. In humans, we make the embryo outside of the body in a dish and then the term in vitro, right? Okay. Literally right. meaning in glass. Right. Okay. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the actual process from collection to freezing Okay. when you when you deal with sperm. Well, so to explain the, the, the processing, whether you're an anonymous donor or you're storing for yourself, which we call personal preservation or what FDA calls sexually intimate partner preservation, then the laboratory process is the same. However, if you are storing for yourself, you make an appointment, we're going to explain to you prior to your appointment that um, you need to abstain from all sexual activity for at least three days and not more than seven. And that is so that we can, on average, get a typical count of what that person's body produces. Mm-hmm. Might take 48 hours to replenish the sperm count after an ejaculation, but for some people it may take longer. So we say three to seven days hoping we get at least two (laughs) because everybody has a secret, right? They always lie. So (laughs) anyway, so they come in and there's a lot of paperwork. So we have to have personal information, uh, their social security number, picture ID that has their date of birth on it. So that can be a passport or a driver's license or a military ID. And then there's a consent form to sign. And this is pretty critical because as you know, and we've all heard in in the media, it's there's, a, there's lawsuits about mixed up specimens and, you know, I don't want to go into that. So it's very legal. This part of it is very, very legal. Well, then once we're done with all of that, patient is put into a collection room and there's a sterile specimen container in there with their name, the date and the time. Uh, and it's on the side of the cup and the lid. And this is to reduce, of course, any type any of, chance cr- of yeah. yeah. So you have command of the identity of the specimen all the way through from this point forward, right? So then once that person has finished collecting, we go in, we collect the specimen cup, it goes into our lab, it's logged in. So we begin processing. 
we wash all of our specimens. We're probably the only cryo bank in the nation that pre-washes all of our specimens. That means we remove the seminal fluid from the sperm cells because seminal fluid is really very actually junky and toxic. Okay. And so we do that with a very simple um, buffered solution, sperm-like, and we centrifuge it. So the sperm will pellet at the bottom. We pull off the top, which is called the supernatant. Then we take our cryoprotectant mixture and then depending on the count and the motility is how many insemination vials are we going to get, okay? Now, the insemination vials are labeled with their date of birth, their full name, the date of processing, and the location, and the word washed, meaning anybody, any lab who gets our specimens knows this specimen has been pre-washed and is ready to go in any procedure that they want to utilize, yeah. right? Plus, you have to handle washed sperm differently than unwashed that's sure. frozen. That's a whole other thing. So then it's put in the vapor for at least 10 minutes. And then those specimens are taken out and put on a personally labeled cane that holds six vials and then put into either vapor storage or liquid storage. You said that like depending on how many sperm, it would be how many vials. How, yeah. many, how many sperm do you need for a vial? That's a great question. So when I first started in this industry, male fertility was booming. Like it was, it was oh, great. You know, like if a, if a fella didn't have between 80 and 100 million cells per milliliter it was like no you can't be a donor but because male fertility is on the decline and yes that's a fact it's not fiction we've lowered the bar a little bit because we have to right mm -hmm. so we like to see a fresh ejaculate have at least 40 million this is in our anonymous donor with about at least 50 percent meaning five out of ten are alive and moving but having said that knowing we're going to lose about 50 percent in the freeze and we want to end up with at least 5 million modal cells, not just 5 million cells, but 5 million modal cells post-thaw. That's how we're going to calculate how many units we're going to use. Right? So so do some people have to collect more than one time in oh, order to get to their numbers? No. Well, not in one day. Okay. So You'd have we, to go come back because you want to have those days in between? Yes, you have to have those days in between. And we're going to process that date. So. Now that we have more advanced reproductive technology where we can actually take a sperm and inject it directly into the oocyte, which is called ICSI, we freeze everything. It, historically, if a, if a man only had like 2 million cells, we'd say, this can't be used for anything. Not even IVF. It's just too low. But now we freeze everything. So I've, I've frozen sperm that had maybe 500,000 in the entire ejaculate and hopes that you get one twitching sperm in the post-thaw, right? Mm -hmm. Because that twitching sperm can actually be captured and injected directly into the oocyte in another facility. So mm -hmm. frozen DNA that's viable is frozen DNA that's viable, and we recommend storing that. So there's not a minimum. There's not a minimum. Number. Not for uh, not for personal crime preservation. For anonymous donor, there is. Okay, what's the minimum for anonymous donor? We, we will not sell anything that has less than 5 million modal cells. Okay. And but they are specimens probably average somewhere between 15 and 35. So and I was going to ask, like what with fertility, male fertility on the decline yeah. and stuff, what is on average the number of sperm in a average ejaculate? Yeah, I'll use my donor population because that's the hand-picked population. And so I would have to say that on average, we're going to see 50 million cells per ml with an average motility of 70%. Okay, 50 million. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you might think, wow, that's you could have 50 pregnancies or 50 million pregnancies off that because it only takes one, right? But it doesn't just take no, one. No, because by yeah. the time they get up to the, to the like ovary and the 50. egg, there's only like, yeah, yeah. less than Not 100 of them left. Yeah. 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 So that's 
sexually intimate partner. Now, anonymous donor is very complicated. It, and all, this tissue is FDA regulated, whether it's personal or anonymous. So if they're storing for themselves, this specimen can only be used for somebody that they're sexually intimate with. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about the trans population and we have men assigned to male at birth that are transitioning to female and they have sex with men who are assigned male at birth, FDA considers them ineligible. That's an ineligible sexual activity. But as a directed donor, that can be waived by the intended parents. Gotcha. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Okay. So FDA doesn't care what your sexual identity is. They care what your sexual behavior is. Right. Right. So our donors, that can't be waived because they're anonymous. So all of our donors have to be, their behavior has to be heterosexual. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's crazy because those donors are screened end, from day sperm, one. Right? Huh? I said in the end, sperm is sperm, right? Well, what they're concerned about is risk of transmission of yeah. sexually transmitted So that disease. was going to be my next question is for donors, do you have to screen for STIs before you can oh, take yeah. sperm? So <laughs> they have to go through, uh, it's a 17-page profile that they have to fill out. Uh, then they're interviewed. Mm-hmm. And then their sa- sample is evaluated and if that sample isn't good, because you know one one ejaculate is not a diagnosis, because male, as you know, fertility fluctuates daily, so they have to give on a minimum three ejaculates, and then if all of that passes, they're given a physical, at which time we screen for all sexually transmitted infections, probably including some you haven't even heard of, and if those are all negative, then the donors accepted into our program. Okay. And we request a once a week commitment for at least six months to a year, so it's a That's commitment. A, yeah, and it's a pretty big. Screening process, which is nice. Yes. And so then they're screened every six months. And we can't release a specimen unless it comes out of a negative six-month quarantine. So anything we collect today, we can't release till a year from now. Wow. Yeah. So it's a very expensive process for us. Mm-hmm. And we probably deny close to 80 to 85% of our applicants. Wow. So in your office, and let me just throw this in here, totally random question right here, but how many offices do you have? We have a main office in Loveland, and then we have a satellite office in Denver and one in Boulder. Okay, so three different offices. And in your offices, like all together, do you see more people coming in for personal cryopreservation or donor? Well, historically it was donor, Mm -hmm. uh, but now we're seeing more directed donor, which is somebody who's storing for somebody that they may or may not be sexually intimate with, but for a specific like somebody who's transitioning, right. they're storing for themselves, but they're probably going to use an oocyte donor and a gestational carrier right. or not. You know, it just depends on what where they land. Sure. Um, but a sexually intimate partner obviously is storing for somebody that they're definitely going to raise this person with. But an anonymous donor is for sale. Yeah. Right? Our specimens are for sale. So historically, we saw mostly anonymous donor. But with changes in society, with more people transit, you know, feeling safe Mm -hmm. and wanting to reproduce even though they're trans we see that we see a lot more directed donor people saying no i want to pick my donor i want to know this donor so we see a lot more of that but then also keep in mind one of the reasons we store is for the possibility of sterility Mm -hmm. so whether that's chemotherapy radiation surgery vasectomy hormone treatment people will store prior to that. So if we're looking at percentages, are you seeing a higher percentage of personal or still a higher percentage of donors, but the personal's on the rise? Yeah. Yeah. So it's still, you're still seeing more people come in for, for donor, but the other side of it is on the rise. 
Yes. Okay. I would say it's almost 50-50 now, whereas oh. before it was 70-30. Okay. And I and I eventually think it'll flip the mm -hmm. other way. That's that's really interesting how that has changed just in the 30 years that you've been doing this. Oh, yeah. A lot has changed. Yeah. Including FDA. So what's you talked about like the process of how you freeze sperm, but like how long can you freeze a sperm and still have it be viable when you thaw? Oh, that's a great question. So as long as sperm are stored at the proper temperature, meaning either liquid nitrogen proper or the vapor, you can store them indefinitely. So we had a patient who stored with us. This is one of my favorite stories. I think I've told it before. He was fairly young, diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, which is just not a good diagnosis, but survived it. And typically those, a lot of those patients are left completely sterile where their fertility doesn't bounce back after treatment. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was completely sterile, but he ended up getting married and needed his specimens. And this was 18 years later and uh, got pregnant, waited a few years, sent out the rest of his specimens, had a second baby. So we know 20, 25 years out, even plus problem. even longer. Yeah. That's really cool. You know, that because it doesn't age. The DNA in that state doesn't age. Right. right. It's, it's, just, a, it's a snapshot it's in time that is suspended at that age. Right. It's, it's like science fiction. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, what it sounds oh, like yeah. to me. And I know it's not fiction because it's real, but it, you know, you see these movies where like, people get frozen to travel in space or yeah. whatever and, and yeah it's all science fiction-y but that's yeah. that what's that's what this is yeah except it's real yeah but after understanding surface area and how sperm are so yeah. little and why they freeze so well you can understand why it's impossible to freeze a human yeah 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 that, that totally makes sense i mean you could but they just wouldn't survive it yeah <laughs> you would not be able to thaw them later well you could you'll thaw them later but they'll they'll, 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 they'll be dead <laughs> Yeah. And another thing that we're seeing is men over the who are pushing 40 are storing sperm because of the new studies that are coming out that men's DNA after the age of 40 starts to become problematic, mm -hmm. right? We start to see problems in offspring uh, straight out, like this isn't folklore. Right. And so it's, men it's are just like, like women over the age of 35 have yeah. higher risk of Down syndrome. Yes, yeah. all those things are true. And so now we're starting to see men are waking up to that and they're like, well, I want to I want to store prior to 40. We don't take a donor. Our anonymous donor pool We've never taken a donor over the age of 35, and we never will. Other banks have, but we don't. So you guys are a little bit more selective in that aging age process? Even 30 years ago, mm -hmm. yeah. What are some of the qualities you look for in a sperm, in like in sperm to accept it? Like you talk about motility and all of that stuff, but for the average listener, like what does all of that mean? What are some ways that sperm can be... I don't know, deformed or malformed or, you know, like what are some of the things that you see that make sperm not mobile? Yeah. So there are a lot of things environmentally that, uh, in fact, probably everything that men do to their bodies affects their reproduction. Sure, because it's happening every day. Because it's happening every day and, and that it can affect it at different stages of production, right? And so heat stress is a big one. We will see a lot of the, the shape of a sperm is very distinct with respect to its head and its it has a structure called an acrosome and then the tail. Mm -hmm. So we look at all of those things and they have to be pretty clean, pretty perfect. If a sperm isn't healthy, it's going to have a reduced chance of fertilizing the oocyte in the body. Yeah. So things that can affect male fertility are smoking, excessive alcohol use, excessive uh, heat exposure, which is, includes... Compression shorts, whether you're running, riding a bike, you know. Does it include tidy whities 
It, it can. It really can. And a lot of sitting, right? So mm-hmm. anything uh, that doesn't allow the scrotum to, to, to go lower. up and down, right? Mm-hmm. So to self-regulate its temperatures. So we see, we can see a lot of heat stress in that regard. So whatever they're doing, that needs to stop. But if I see that today, that happened about 30 days, 90 days ago. Sure. So they can change their habit today, and it but we're not going to see the months. effect for another 90 days. Yeah. Right. So if sperm aren't shaped well, don't have good initial motility, which is the motility is how well they move. Mm-hmm. You know, are they moving straight, having good swimming? Sperm don't really swim, but that's what we call it. Sure. And does their tail move correctly? Right. It only moves this way. So yeah. they kind of make sort of like a spinner movement mm-hmm. in like when you're pulling a spinner in because it's only doing this, but it's rolling. Spin- yeah. That's what sperm do. They and roll. so, like, some sperm might be born with two heads, some sperm oh, might be born heads, without a tail. Big heads, little heads, no heads, a coiled tail, a bent tail, a bent neck. People who smoke, we tend to see a lot of bent necks. And and the neck is going to be that thing you call the acrosome, right? For no, the neck are... is where the, actually the head connects with the tail. So um, the head, obviously, is the biggest mm-hmm. portion of the sperm, and then you have the tail, which is has all the motility for the sperm. And... That junction is very important because of that connectivity, right? And if that, if the neck is weak, the he- head will flop around and bend, and, and, won't and then you have a problem. Where it's yeah, supposed to go to. Well, I guess that's. Well, I just imagine yeah. trying to drive a bent nail into a piece of wood. Sure, it won't go where it's supposed to go. Right. Um, and like, do you see? I'm going to, again, go with just the average ejaculation. Do you see uh, a lot of these malformed and deformed sperm? Yes. And that's pretty typical, right? For, now. For, so, what, 30 years ago was it as typical? No. Interesting. So, what's really, so there's this organization called the World Health Organization, and since COVID, everybody knows who they are. And they set out certain standards with different types of tissues and stuff. And so they send out standards called the World Health Organization standards for semen quality. I don't necessarily agree with all of their standards or their pro- or their things, but they set the standards. But what is important about them is they've actually, they have historically tracked this as far as male fertility. So when I first started, a man was considered subfertile if he had less than 60 million cells in his ejaculate. <laughs> that is so so gone now we don't right. and, and and he had to have something like 30 percent normal cells so we have of course tightened our evaluation where we're very strict in how we evaluate sperm so now if we see sperm with four percent normal cells and at least 15 million cells per ml we're good they're considered right, so normal sperm so those standards not the standards have gone down but the no the standards have gone down yeah, the standards have gone down <laughs> we've lowered the bar and the reason there's it's twofold one is because those numbers have dropped, but also people are still getting pregnant. It's not like the infertility rate has gone up. Right. So now we know we don't need all those numbers. It was really nice when we had them, but the bar is dropping. Now, we really can't drop it much lower because it is that does then drop you into what we would consider infertile or subfertile. So when it comes to... to- Finding the sperm and, and deciding like which ones you're going to take. Are there any other qualifications that you like? Is there a height or a weight or age or ethnicity or any of those things that you take into consideration when you're so like what we're looking for in a sperm donor? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking for um, people who have a healthy lifestyle, pretty clean genetics, obviously, because we don't want to knowingly give somebody hunting disease. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that I know that may, I don't want people to think that's eugenics because it's not. 
Um, it's just a safety issue, right? Sure. Do no harm kind of thing. But height, weight, eye color, hair color isn't important to us. Ethnicity is not important to us. Although but I you tell you, keep track of that because oh, the people that choose to. a donor yes. want all to. All right, if you go to, to our donor those list, parameters. all those things are listed. Yeah. Blood type, years of education, uh, hobbies, mm -hmm. interests. They can also download their entire 17-page profile and look at it. But I think what's important to note here is that one day I got a call from somebody and she was really disappointed that we didn't have more African-Americans uh, on our donor list. And I said, I would love to have more black people on our donor list. They don't apply. And that might be partly our demographic because we're in northern Colorado and maybe that's the demographic. But it's hard. I've, like I told you, I've had the sperm bank for 32 years and I've had three black donors, maybe four. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And so she, she said, I, I didn't know that. And I said, right. So before you give us a bad Google review, <laughs> maybe you should ask the question. And we don't discriminate. Right. We would love to have the biodiversity. They don't apply. Do donors have to pay? Do they get no, paid? No, they get paid. Okay. Uh -huh. They get paid. Their physicals are free. All of their screening is free. So, yeah. So what, what is considered a low sperm count now? Anything less than 15 million per ml or less than 39 million in the total ejaculate. Okay. And how many mls in a, is generally in an ejaculate? Anything between one and five is considered an acceptable range. Anything lower than one is too low. And anything greater than five is too high. Because I know you're thinking, well, how is that a problem? Well, imagine five goldfish in a cup of water. Now imagine five goldfish in a bucket and you're using that bucket to inseminate you have high volume low concentration yeah. a lot gets lost sure. right yeah. so so you, that's you, why one between one and five is what we're looking yeah because we don't look at just one parameter we look at the count the volume of the ejaculate the percent that are moving and then you calculate all those numbers out and it gives you a number of what sperm we think are good for that process what kind of thing in in a male body would cause too much semen, too much yeah. seminal fluid. It's just how their seminal vesicles produce and how their prostate produces. Because in a, an ejaculate, you know, what is it? So we've got five to 10% of the ejaculate is actual sperm cells. So 95% of the ejaculate, the rest of it comes from the prostate or the seminal vesicles. And the majority of that comes from the seminal vesicles. So if you have somebody who has high volume, one of two things is going on. They just, their seminal vesicles just produce high mm -hmm. along with the prostate or they haven't ejaculated for a while. Okay. A little yeah. bit of fluid can build up in the way that... Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, how many people do you see through all of your clinics in a year? Like, what's the number, about the number of people that you would see come through for all reasons? I have no idea. Oh. Yeah, that's a... I don't, you know, I... Uh, you don't yeah. really keep track? No. Well, and you also have to keep in mind that one one client or one patient could do anything anywhere from one to 15 visits right so when you ask us how many do we store we recommend storing for personal use we would recommend storing at least three to five ejaculates depending on what they think they're going to use the specimens for mm -hmm. so again it's up to that person like if they're facing chemo like they were diagnosed with all or aml and they have to start their chemo right away because it's acute right then they might only have the chance to store one. Yeah. And so storing one is way better than storing zero because yeah. you still have frozen DNA. And also we have people who undergo 
start storing undergo chemo and it hasn't completely ablated the sperm so count. So they'll store again in the middle of that? We don't recommend oh, that because okay. there's so much toxicity to the DNA at that point. Okay. I know that this this is probably something on many people's thought process when listening to this, but the actual process of collection, like I know that all of us have like a movie version of this in our uh, heads, you know, um, that you give them some, some magazines and some videos in a dark room or whatever, and they come out <laughs> with a cup. So can you tell us about that process? Because obviously somebody has to go in and masturbate to get their ejaculate. Yeah. And and everybody's got these, you know, crazy movie ideas yeah. about what that might look like. So yeah. I know people are curious. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, I know you're not in the room, so it's not like you're seeing what they do, but, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really good question though because we get those questions asked for patients before they come in because they want to know is there somebody going to be there to help them or can my partner go in with me or you might have there might have people who have religious issues that mm -hmm. masturbation is not considered okay and how do we get around those issues yeah. those situations so in general it's a private room with a locked door we do have magazines a lot of centers have uh videos or not even videos now they just do internet we don't do that mm -hmm. if people want to do that they'll like they can use their phone or they can even bring in their their own laptop and there's a reason we don't do that one is because time is an issue and we don't want somebody maybe just in there watching a movie for an hour yeah 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 and so that you know so but so we do have magazines the it, the collection is done by masturbation. We don't really allow any lubrication other than saliva or it's the, the body's own ability to lubricate because anything that could potentially contaminate could cause, could kill the sperm we don't want present. Sure. When a couple goes in. So you could have a couple go in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But we have to explain to them that you can stimulate orally, but you can't collect orally. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's often... I remember explaining to this one couple, and I was just matter of fact, very scientific. You know, this is what you can do. And she just looks at me. She goes, "God, I feel like my mother is talking to me." And I said, and I she starts laughing, and I go, "I'm really sorry, but if you want the best outcome, right? Yeah. This is what we need uh, you to not do." And right. she's like, "Fine, fine, fine." You know, but here's what happens a lot. They, you know, if they if a couple comes in and we're getting ready to put them back in a room and and. She'll say, do you want me to go with you? And he's like, uh, 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 no, yeah, sure, whatever. And then often, like, two minutes later, she's she's left the room yeah. and he's by himself because it just probably isn't, there, you know, maybe conducive for that. But there are some people that this is no problem. Yeah. Um, but you have to also keep in mind, we work with juveniles. So mm -hmm. we work with kids under the age of 18. And we have to ask the parents. Where's your kid in, you know, the tanner stages of puberty? Sure. We say, are they at least stage four? And they're like, well, we don't know what that means. And we're just like, well, have they had a wet dream? Have they ejaculated? Do they masturbate to the point of orgasm? And they're like, well, I don't know that. And I'm like, well, now you have to have a conversation with your kiddo. Because if you're going to store this, you need to know. Yeah, if, like if you, you're produced. making them come to a cryobank and store, which maybe is way above their pay scale or not, yeah. depending on their age. But then you have to explain that this is what they have to do. And so... That, that conversation has to happen one way yeah, or the other. Yeah, and some of, so a lot of parents will say, I want you to talk to my kid about it. And, of course, because of what we do, you know, I'm fine yeah. with that, but still, yeah. you know. And then the big question is because we have Penthouse and Playboy. Can your kids can see you, these? What, this is an age mm -hmm. thing. Do you want it left in there? Do you not? And then a lot of parents, it's 50-50. No, I don't want that in there. And Or, oh, my God, yes, whatever, you yeah. know. Whatever it's going to take. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
there's a lot a lot of layers there. But yeah. it's private and it's it's what we do, you know. Yeah. And, and I know people might feel awkward, but it's not like you're in your donuts world, it's very this. matter of fact. Right. Yeah. It's right. it's just like when you go to the gynecologist and yeah. you feel weird having their face right up there in your vulva, but they see so many vulvas a day that for them it is not a thing. <laughs> no. And it's just weird for you. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And so, you're not doing it at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> I suppose you could, but, but it's I wouldn't recommend it. Not a sanitary. No. So when it comes to running a business like this, like, do you find it difficult to find and keep people working for you? Like, how, how is that? Pro like, what kind of degree or special knowledge do people <laughs> have to have to work for you? And, and is it hard to find those people and keep those people? And like, how do you, when you just talk about the business itself, how yeah. is that? So, as you know, I have my doctorate in human reproduction and I'm board certified which allows me to direct the lab because it's also CLIA regulated, right? So, um, and, FD, and FDA requires those requirements. But the my staff, historically, typically I'd want somebody in the biological field who had a degree. But over time, I've come to realize that a master's is really important for my staff. Not in the effect that they're smarter, but they are in a different stage of their life where they're really focusing on career, right? Because the learning curve to work in what I do is easily a year, maybe longer. Yeah. And so, and that's just for the basic stuff, right? And if you don't have a degree in reproductive biology, then you're learning that too, right? right. And so having a biological background with some anatomy is critical. I typically don't, at this point, don't, want to take anybody who has less than a master's. Mm -hmm. I have in the past. And in the long run, it they don't stay as long right. because they find that's not their focus. Maybe. It's not their focus. Mm -hmm. And and that's okay. Yeah. But it also costs a lot of time and money to replace them. Sure. So and I don't expect people to be lifers. If I get two years, three years out of somebody, I'm grateful. My current lab supervisor who I'm paying for her schooling to get her doctorate. She's been with me going into her fifth year. Mm -hmm. There's also other requirements than just having a science mind, like because we deal with such emotionally charged situations. So there's a lot of psychology involved in it. There's a definite need for understanding sociology. All of my staff have to be LGBTQ friendly and trained. Uh, we're very pronoun uh, aware and chosen name aware. We uh, work with what was originally considered sexual minorities. So we're working with men who are married to men, women who are married to women. And if I'm interviewing somebody and I feel any hesitancy in that arena, they don't work for me okay. because you're not just a lab rat. You don't get to be in the lab. We do everything, right. you know, from drawing blood to answering phones, to taking out the trash, to processing semen. Right. And how yeah. many people do you generally employ? I have two full-time employees. Then we have a contracted medical director, there's me, so that's three of us. So we're tiny. And and the three of you run all three offices? Yep. So I go to the Denver office Tuesday mornings. Uh, we're, only in, we're only in Denver Tuesday mornings. And Jerrica goes to the Boulder office Wednesday mornings because we're only in Boulder Wednesday mornings. But those offices fill up. Right. So you you only have those two open one, once a week, but mm -hmm. you're busy on the days that they're open. Yes. All right. So uh, I have a question about your business again, talking about like, the people you have and who you employ and everything. So like, what are you going to do when you retire? Who will oh. take over your business or, uh. or will you sell it or like, yeah, like what's yeah. going to happen there? 
we breathe life into this, right? So yeah. I, it's been my I mean, like this is day. your baby. This is literally, yeah. So does that baby? Yeah. And so go away. Yeah. Well, good question, right? So I don't. There's a lot into it. We've been around a long time. There's a lot of frozen assets, pun intended. And so you would definitely want somebody to take it over. And the two options are: I just sell it mm -hmm. to somebody who can do this, or I work with an employee who maybe would want to buy it. I mean, I think with right now with one of my employees finishing her doctorate, eventually passing boards, the idea would be that I would pass the torch onto her. Now, whether or not she wants to purchase it is yet to be seen, but it's all very transparent. Like, you know, I don't. But would you be willing to own it and have her just run it no. if you retire? No. No. Can't do that. Can you imagine? No. No. Because you yeah. wouldn't be retired. No. <laughs> right. I mean, I'll be happy to fill in. Like, if you know, whoever buys it, they're in a bind or, you know, they're short-staffed. I can jump in and do some bench work. No problem. Be glad to do that. But you have to understand it's it's hard to straddle that world where you have this business that you've built life into it and then somebody else is running it and then they want you to work there or help or manage it for you and you're like well then we have to do it my way but I don't own it right see so you kind of have to just like you have to just let it go let it way. go mm -hmm. because you did what you did I did what I did I'm proud of what I did we have a good reputation I I'm pretty strict about what I do I'm old school in a lot of things that I do that are really solid and I'm not going to change that no matter what the industry wants to push us to do. I don't change that. And a lot of people like that. We're mm -hmm. the boutique of sperm banking, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to go to a large department store, go to one of those large cryo banks corporately run in the United States. And there's no good on you. Do that because yeah. your needs will be met. But if you like that boutique, because you will get one of three of us to talk to consistently. Yeah. And we'll get to know you. We'll spend a lot of time with you on the phone if that's what you need. You know, mm -hmm. we're not a numbers game. So how long do you think you'll go before you <laughs> decide to retire from this? Yeah, good question. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 62 this summer. And, you know, we have looked both ways and would love to just keep, that's my retirement dream, right? It's mm -hmm. just all day doing that. Not that I don't love what I do now, sure. but I do have something on the horizon that can occupy my time and that's look both ways. And so don't, I'm not going to be 70 doing this. Let's yeah. just put it that way. But you don't have immediate plans for like the next year or two. I don't. I so, mean, unless somebody wants to come in and offer me $10 million and maybe, you know. Hey, if you or somebody you know <laughs> wants to own a sperm bank, please <laughs> contact Betsy Cairo. Um <laughs> And if you call in the next five minutes, <laughs> we'll throw you in the company employees. car. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All the employees are a must. Um, they definitely have to be part of the deal. So you you mentioned something about, you know, you kind of jokingly like, we have a lot of frozen assets. Yeah. So speaking of frozen assets, what yeah. happens? Like, say somebody donates or especially for personal use. Um, and then what happens after that? They donate. Do they? All right. So do they all pick it up? Like what? So some people store like prior to chemo or, or vasectomy or whatever. Um, and then maybe their fertility returned after chemo treatment and they don't need it or they do. So then we would ship it out based on their ordering. Right. So that's all legal to, you know, notarized document because, you yeah. know, you would want somebody going to, you can't just account. come in and grab some yeah. sperm and leave. Yeah. You, you would want somebody to show ID if they were going to take money out of your bank account. Same idea, yeah. same idea. And so they can be utilized for intrauterine insemination. They can be used for IVF, 
So whatever. Um, for people who are transitioning that maybe have full surgery or, or even just hormonal process that stops the function of, of sperm producing, they would use theirs in a situation with probably an uh, oocyte or egg donor and then a gestational carrier or somebody to carry that pregnancy. But then you have people who we get oocytes sent into us or embryos sent into us from other centers for long-term storage. And a lot of times these are people who have their pregnancies. Like they did embryo transfer somewhere else. They might have one or two offspring from that, but they have, let's say, five frozen embryos remaining and they get into that, uh-oh, what do we do now situation because they never thought about it, right? They never thought, oh, I have frozen embryos that could be a potential Sarah or Sam because that's who's running around their house right now. Right. So they get into this emotional dilemma of what do we do? So a lot of those, we're the resting home for that, right? Mm -hmm. So these embryos, these people pay a contract we ship those embryos in, they pay to store those embryos. Okay. So what happens when that contract breaks down, whereas our end of the contract is we store that tissue to the best of our ability to keep it viable. And their responsibility is to pay for that storage. Right. And what happens when they stop paying? Yeah, okay. what does happen? Yeah, well, imagine. So this is a huge liability for us mm -hmm. because now we have what's called abandoned tissue. And we're licensed in several different states, and states have different regulations of what they consider abandoned. Okay. And what allows you, with not full exoneration, but pretty safe protection from lawsuit, to discard those embryos mm -hmm. without consent. So typically what's ideal is people say, you know what, we're done with our family. We don't want these embryos anymore. Here's our notarized consent to destroy those embryos. That's perfect. Right. But then we have people who are like, don't want to make this decision, stop taking our calls, don't answer our emails, we have to send them to collections. If yeah. that doesn't work, then we have to process serve them. Because we have to be sure and prove in a court of law, if it were to come to that, that we made every attempt to reach out to these people to say, hello, did We've you forget something? Yeah. And prove to the court that we were ghosted they drop the ball on their responsibility, and we have a contract with them that states, and we do, failure to pay your storage fee can and will result in destruction of tissue. Okay. So people might think that's cold. Again, no pun intended, definitely on that one. But think about that liability, that the position they're putting us yeah. in to make them make a decision that they can't make. Right. Not fair. And so then they just leave it to you to make the decision. Yeah. Which essentially is making the decision, choosing to not pay and to not, like, they signed the contract that said this is what will happen if they don't pay. So, yeah. in theory, they, they made the decision. Yeah. They just aren't telling you. Yeah. They don't want to admit it out loud or whatever. Well, they're not connecting that to their conscience, which is fine. Or that we have couples who divorce. That's the, a lot of fun. Those uh, are our most fun. Do you ever fact. have custody battles? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And they're used as a tool to hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Never really they're like children, frozen but frozen. Tissue as a uh, yeah. custody thing, but I could see where that would it's horrible. come up. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely horrible. So we have custody battles over that. So uh -huh. what happens if somebody passes away and, uh, and, and yeah. you've got all their tissue yeah. and they obviously can't send, <laughs> sign a consent or yeah. anything? Is there is there like a fallback? Like, does it, 
is it inherited by anybody? Yes, or, like, it can be. Okay. So, but does that have to be stipulated? Or yes. Like, if it's not stipulated, what happens to those? It's thrown away. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's discarded. Um, so you have to understand, their tissue is their tissue. We don't sell it. We don't broker it. We don't give it to anybody else. It is theirs, mm -hmm. and we tell everybody who signs our consent form, you need to put this in your will. Whether you think you're going to live one more day or 100,000 more years, you have to stipulate that you have frozen DNA and this is what you want done with it in the event of your passing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're done here. Yeah. And so we, and people do that and they'll send us those letters. Or if they pass, we'll say, did they leave a will? They did. And, and you're the person they left it to. Fine. Now you own it. What do you want to do with it? Do you want to continue paying storage? Do you want to, you have the right to destroy it? If you're working with somebody who is a minor, who signed a consent as a minor, and then who passed because of cancer or whatever, it's the parent's decision. Okay. Yeah. A lot of legal stuff that you wouldn't really, like most people would not really think about that goes. But it's DNA. Sure. I mean, it, it makes sense that there's yeah. that much. But see, when we say sperm, people are like, oh, sperm, sperm, sperm. You know, like Monty Python, sperm, sperm, sperm. But when we say DNA, people go, oh, yeah, I forgot. That's kind of important. Yeah. 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 I don't know why sperm aren't important, so we have to kind of call them DNA now. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Embryos right? too, though. But see, with embryos, now you have two people. Sure. There has to be two people involved. Yeah. 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 So the, the actual storage facility that you have, what does that look like? I mean, are we looking at shelves of a freezer space? Are we looking at canisters of nitrogen? Like, what do you... And I've been and, to your office. Yeah. And, and You've seen them, right? I have. Yeah. So... Um, and that's a really common question. A lot of one of the biggest questions we get asked is, "What happens if the electricity goes out?" You know, and we have to explain to them that our storage tanks are not electricity dependent. They are liquid nitrogen doers. So, in your mind, picture a gigantic thermos, mm -hmm. and I don't mean tall and narrow, but tanks can look like that. So, picture something short and squatty and round, maybe has a diameter of three feet, mm -hmm. and inside that is liquid nitrogen that stays in liquid phase. And then we have canisters or, or uh, a picture of a round cylinder with a rod on it that we can reach in and grab. Mm -hmm. And then inside of that are individual canes labeled with this person's name. So the storage is all freestanding. There's no electricity involved. It's all based on those tanks holding their pressure and holding liquid nitrogen. So the next question obviously is, what happens? How do you know a tank is doing its job? Yeah. Well. I like to tell everybody we have a close personal relationship with our tanks because we do not monitor our tanks only electronically. We monitor them physically. So every day they're hand dipped to measure their level. And then we make sure that that level loss is consistent with what it should be based on the holding capacity of that tank, right? And then the tanks are topped off because liquid nitrogen will eventually, it'll blow off and you then have to top it off. And so our tanks are topped off depending on the holding time of the tank, anywhere from two weeks to 10 days. Yeah. One of our larger tanks that's vapor only is topped off every week. How many tanks do you have? Oh, I, that's a great question. So let me, so the smaller doers uh, we have, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, nine, For our listeners, she's literally picturing her office in her head right now <laughs> and counting. Twenty-two. Twenty-two. And then we have a large, a large tank uh, that holds, oh, a lot. Probably, I want to say, fifty thousand units. Oh. And then we have another large tank that holds probably fifteen. 
thousand. And so your smaller tanks that you have 22 of, how many do they hold? They hold about, if they're full of sperm, they're going to hold less than if they're full of straws, which embryos and oocytes are typically in straws. So uh, let's just say it's sperm. They're going to hold um, 4,000 units. So you have the capacity to store a, a lot. really lot. A lot. Yeah. And, and we're smaller. Are you typically full? Or like, where do you? Oh, we always have we always have overflow tanks. So and that's for backup, right? So mm -hmm. if a tank is showing us that it's not feeling well, then that tank is emptied, you know, we leave the liquid nitrogen in there, but all the specimens are moved to a tank, to an empty tank. So you have to have overflow capacity, right? Mm -hmm. Because a tank can go at any moment. We've never had tank failure, believe it or not. So knock on wood. Yeah. Uh, but we are also very good to our tanks. We never pressure fill. We only hand fill. So yeah. So you have at all times more capacity than you're ever going to use because you always have to have the backup space. Yes. Mm -hmm not backup space included have you ever been full uh no and i'll tell you why because it's sort of an evolving process where we have patients who are consenting to destroy and patients who are They're coming store. in so it's kind of always so it's a... sort of this evolution of movement mm -hmm. of specimens that we discard we discard in batches kind of like sperm itself Some yeah ejaculated it's, uh, and new yeah, ones are yeah, born. yeah yeah yep um if you actually go to our website you'll see some it's pictures a picture of, of our it. tanks, yeah. So, Betsy, if people want to learn more about your business, where can they go? They go to our website, cryogam.com. That's C-R-Y-O-G-A-M.com. Cryogam.com. Well, that's all the questions that I could come up with and think of for you. So is there anything else that we didn't cover today that you want to share about your business or what you do? Uh, no, I, I, I've really enjoyed this because, you know, I live and breathe this. Yeah. It's my, it's definitely my jam. And, uh, but I think what I would like people to know is that we really take seriously what we do. Mm -hmm. And even though you hear these horrible stories in the industry of tanks failing and people losing specimens and mixed up specimens, we're human and, and mistakes can be made, but there are a lot of safeguards in our system and other systems as well to try and not have that happen. And our goal truly is to maintain your reproductive future. That's our goal. And we want people to know that it's something that is readily available, incredibly affordable. And we're right here in Colorado. Yep. Well, check them out at cryogam.com. And uh, if you have any questions, I know that there's a contact us button on that website. So you can always check it out there and find out more. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you, Betsy. This podcast was created to promote Look Both Ways in the textbook written by Dr. Cairo. Look Both Ways is a nonprofit organization based in Loveland, Colorado, with a mission to educate our youth about their reproductive health to make informed decisions for their future. We do this by educating the educators through professional development, and we also put on free conferences for both teens and parents of teens. Textbooks used at schools are donated by Look Both Ways to eliminate the money obstacle for schools interested in piloting or adopting our curriculum and textbook. As a nonprofit, we're always fundraising and accepting donations. For more information about Look Both Ways, our fundraising efforts, getting a textbook donated to you, or to make a donation, please visit lookbothways.us. That's L-O-O-K-B-O-T-H-W-A-Y-S dot U-S. 
This podcast was produced by Peach Islander Productions in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Mandy Johnson and Dr. B wishing you well. Be sure and catch all our episodes of It's Not Human Sexuality on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.